0: Good morning. morning. You've got a couple of sheets this morning. The first one I want you to look at is Pastor Mike's prayer requests. This is very important to me, folks. You notice I haven't put a prayer letter out before. That's because I'm quite comfortable that I think my prayer is covered by Jeanette. Now, she's been shot down in battle, so I need you to take this very seriously because I've got not just this church, but many churches around the world praying for me at the moment because my workload has gone through the ceiling. This is not... This this doesn't even scratch the surface of what would be there in this place, for example, next year. Um, There's an enormous amount coming up around the world with explosive growth in different nations and continents. And I will be heavily involved in that. So I need you to pray. At this point, I want you to focus on Russia. Because that's my pressing problem. Don't, Don't sit here and let it go in one ear and out the other. I'm asking you to do something. After you've been in church a while, you just stop listening, don't you? You do. You stop hearing stuff. Don't let that be you. Take part in this. This is our work. This is your work. This is your church. And the prioritisation that's come down line, as it should, from my bosses, is they want us to focus on Russia. And I uh, don't want to take too much time on it, but I-, I want you to think about that, to remember that, and take it incredibly seriously, because we've got a lot to do uh, Pray for us to get an opening into Vladivostok. I was preaching here yesterday with the Russian congregation. We had a fantastic meeting. Really great spirit of God here, a precious spirit in this room. And I'm very hopeful of the future. Uh, It's a dangerous time in Russia, and Pastor Alex has uh, made the decision to take his whole family back to Russia and to live there for approximately a three-year period. Um, And because of the area we're going into there, Pastor Ivan will be going in right around the Krasnodar area. This is, this is very hot territory right now. That's beside Donetsk. So he'll be going in as a Christian. And I was just emphasizing to the congregation, folks, we're, it's not a joke anymore. We're sending a family out here. 10,000 people have been shot dead in that area that we're going back to. And Alex, very bravely, it was an intense day yesterday, Pastor Alex very bravely with tears in his eyes, his wife came forward. I've never seen them. Ah oh, yeah, I have I've never seen them, but I have seen that look before. <laughs> that's a that's a decided, considered algo. I've seen that look on a guy in Singapore once. Yeah, okay. Algo. And it was a good day yesterday. I went home very happy, very challenged, but very happy. We can you know, people are willing to go even to their death. And some of us can't even make the elderly meeting. Some people can't even be bothered to get up and turn up on Saturday. And I'm talking about you guys. I'm talking about somebody else. Some of you are so lazy, you can't even get out of bed. We had an evangelism day on Buchanan Street. Stay in bed. Make your mind up, guys. Make your mind up. God has trusted me and trusted you. To live in these days. It's a very serious time. Very serious time. Rise to the challenge. Amen? Amen. Rise to the challenge. Be faithful in the hour that you serve. Be faithful in the hour that you live. And be an example. We're an evangelistic church, a mission church. And that's a great privilege, but it comes with a cost. It's a cost worth paying. Amen. Amen? So pray. Every day, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for our development in Russia, and I've given you this prayer letter. I'll issue them as often as I need to. They may come out more regularly because this has already been updated. I've got a couple of other trips to do already since I printed this. So I will try and update them as regularly as possible. Okay, last week we began a a new series looking at the book of Job. Um, Serious word, all right, but it's a very encouraging book, you know. The more I study it, the more I get into it, the more happy it makes me. If, if many of you will have been to Gordon's house, uh, Gordon has sheds in his garden, right? He's got two or three sheds. And those sheds, you can't get in the shed. Because if you open the door, it's an avalanche of stuff. He has got everything that he's ever been given in his life. The man never throws anything out, right? He also has a lock-up garage. I haven't been to that. But he keeps everything. And the reason he keeps everything is because he believes that maybe one day he might need that, right? Now, I don't have the same policy. If I need it, I'll buy it, right? But I I understand that. I don't employ it, but I understand it. And this book and what we're studying is a bit like this. You may not need what we're studying today. We're studying suffering and pain. All eyes forward, give me your full attention. The thing about suffering is if you go through a crowd like this, Someone over here will say, I'm fine. And someone over here will say, I'm not. Everybody has their time. Everybody has their moment. And you can't put it on a scale because life is like that. We're all entering in and out of difficult periods. We all have good times and bad times. The important thing is that we are wise and we take in the knowledge we need in the good times. You need it in the bad times. But if you're wise here this morning, you will not disregard what I'm saying as some people did last week. You will be wise and you will take on board and listen because the day will come when you, unfortunately, like all of us, will need it. Amen. Amen. Some of you will remember Cynthia. She is a very good missionary to work with. She was with us in Ireland for two years and she was with us here for a year. We ran a... uh, uh, an evangelistic outreach on Sunday night in Dublin with her for about two years. And Sunday night, it was a quiet meeting. There was about 20 people and we would gather around the table and every Sunday night you had to do something different. You understand that? So you have to come up with new ideas every week. And I was late one week. I didn't have a thought. What am I going to do tonight? And I stopped and prayed and I got this idea. I know what I'll do tonight. I'll get an A4 sheet and I cut it into six little squares like cards. I got another one and another one and I made about 50 cards. And I wrote on the, the on each card, on one card I would write sickness, on another card health, on one card god, on another card demons, on one card joy and on one depression. You get the picture? Good and bad. And then I shuffled them all up. You see? And everybody came and they had no idea what was going to happen. So they all sat round in a circle and I began to deal everybody a hand until all the cards, and I kept some gods in my back pocket. I'll explain why in a moment. And I explained to them, life is like that. You get a deck, and it's dealt to you, and you can turn. You can pick up your hand, and turn over the first card, and be whoa, whoa, look what I just got. And then you turn over the next card, hey, don't count your chickens, you know. <laughs> You need to take your time, and you need to lay out all those cards, and that takes time. Nobody knows what the hand reveals. Even in the same family, the hand is very different, right? One brother this way, one brother that way. So, I gave all the cards out, and then I said, okay, everybody, turn your cards over, one at a time. And they began, and you could see the reactions in the group. Some people were happy, My point is, Cynthia was furious. She was really angry because she had no God. There was no God in her hand. And she began to, I don't like this game. I don't want to play it. I could see her and it's so unlike her. And I said, calm down. It's just a game, just an illustration. I said, you know, there's a game called Jack Change It. Where you actually, a certain time comes where you can change your hand. And that's what I'm going to give you the opportunity to do. And she was saying, I want God. <laughs> okay, we all want God. I'll give you the opportunity to do that. But, my but was, it turned out a very good evening. A very challenging evening. Because it kind of shoots down the presumption that we've only turned over two decades, three decades, four decades. And we think we've figured out our lives. Easy does it, guys. Slowly does it. Not so presumptuous. Not so easy. Right? Right? Give God time to reveal your hands and give God time to develop you and to train you and to teach you to be prepared for all circumstances, no matter what comes. Amen. 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 You, If you're wise, you will learn and you will take in these things because unfortunately, I wish I didn't have to say this, but these are the last days and the persecutions are severe today, but they're getting worse, guys. They're getting worse. This whole political correctness business in the UK, is would drive, drive you nuts, wouldn't it? You know, so I don't know where even Britain is going to end up. And if some of you go on the mission field, I don't know what country you'll end up or what you might end up facing. We need to be prepared for it, not be wishy-washy. Today's topic, simple topic, but deep content. Why Why bother studying the book of Job? Why bother? Well, my introduction gives a little bit of light on that. But let me work through these points one by one and give you insight into that. Number one, because hundreds of you are suffering and will suffer and you need light, you need understanding for those times. The reason Job is given to us is because if I go through a hard time, he is pretty much my example that I can study, this is the type of problems I'm going to face, the things he faces, I'm going to face. And he did extremely well. Job is an outstanding character. So God says to me, study the book, learn his good attitudes, he made some mistakes, not many. And the second thing I can learn from the book is be careful of people, because the vast chunk, the biggest part of the book is about his friends, remember? Nearly 38 chapters out of the whole book dedicated to that one point. Of what people will say. We'll look at that in weeks to come. But it's obviously a major issue. Or God wouldn't put it there. Job chapter 1. Verse 1. Job chapter 1. Verse 1. In the land of Uz. There lived a man. Whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. And shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned seven. seven... Oh, dear. It's just gone off my page here. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 5,000 yoke of oxen. This is one rich guy, right? So he's got rich kids. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns in holding feasts, rich kids, right, in their homes... And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Let me just draw your attention to uh, verse 5. When the period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. What does it say next? Early? Early in the morning. In the morning. This week, could I have Loch Oh, Lom- Oh, thank you. This week, I was just beginning, to not for today, but for weeks to come. I want to know what Job was like as a person. What was he like as a guy? You know, just as a man. What, what, what did he do every day? Well, Scripture says there, it was his custom to get up early and to go and pray. Now, it says that Job was righteous, blameless. I'm not righteous. I'm not blameless. (laughs) But I do have this in common, this one thing. Now, I have not been able to get up early like I do normally for the last couple of years because of my home problems. But since Jeanette, Jeanette has been sick and I've been grounded, but just the last 10 days, I've been able to get up and go off for hours. I can't tell you how much I missed that And just this week, I took this photograph. I leave the house, 4.15, 5 5 o'clock. It's not a burden for me. It's not a discipline. I don't do it as a discipline. It doesn't, it's not work. I wake up because I wake up. I wake up because my spirit is awake, and it is easy for me to get up. It is easy. I get up, I have a shower, and my goal is to get through the door as fast as possible, Get out of the house. And exactly the same as Ray Belfield. He does precisely the same thing. Get up, get a shower, and get out of the house. Because, folks, I find that God requires first place. Not second. And if I, I find that if I do one other thing, if I open my email just to see what I need to do, it's just not quite the same. Right? He requires that first place. So the other thing was Wednesday, I think twice this week, I went down to Loch Lomond, just got up early and drove down, park up and walk along the shore. My point is, this is a great place. I don't mean Loch Lomond. I mean the spiritual place. To give God that time. If you can't pray here, God help you. If that's not conducive, it's just so beautiful to be in the... Everybody's asleep everybody's asleep, and there's something different about it. Let me give you a stupid example, because I can't think of a good one. Let's say Everson wanted to talk to me at the end of the meeting. I get it every week. And he's got something important on his mind. It's very difficult. I've got a hundred people want to talk to me. You come and talk to me. You know, my mind is, I need to talk to this, I need to talk to that. And I'm talking to you. And my attention to you is diluted greatly just because of what's happening. It's a bad example. But let's say you and I were in this building on our own at 4.30. Just you and me, nobody else. And you come to me and you say, you know, I want to talk to you about something. Then you'll get my attention. You'll get my full, undivided, complete attention. And you and I won't just have a monologue. It won't just be you talking, but I will consider what you have to say and I will reply. And so it is for me. I highly value my early times. Highly value them. Because in them I find intimacy with God. And that intimacy, as we saw last week, sustains me through troubled waters. And it gives me a depth in my relationship that cannot be rocked by the things of life. So don't underestimate it. If it wasn't scriptural, I wouldn't bring it to you. I just emphasize, it's not a discipline. It's a pleasure. I've done it as a discipline. I don't do it as a discipline anymore. I do it as something I love to do. Jesus did it. David did it. Paul did it, right? And I would advise you to develop that part of your life, right? A place of intimacy where you know, listening? Everybody listening? You know you've made connection with God. When your prayer time becomes you going in, blah, 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 and gone. No, 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 no. That's called religion. Your prayer time should be a time when I go in before God and I connect with Him. And I know I have. I know that He's in me. I know that He's heard me. And I know that I've heard Him. That's prayer. Nothing short of that is prayer. Short of that we call religion. So, My my point, it's not today's topic, but my point in the life of Job is we haven't even got six verses into the book, which is the first book ever written, and already the guy, every day, is up early and has given the first portion of his day to God, and this is the first point of all the books, as I say, ever written in the Bible to you and to me. Amen. Amen. Good advice. Good example, Job. Good example. Let's pursue it. Why should we study Job? Number two. Because if you follow God, I'm sorry to say, but it's true. If you follow God, sufferings will come. The Bible promises it, unfortunately. And if you look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. my Bible's playing up on me today. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Ah, yeah, yeah. Acts chapter verse says, strengthening the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. And Paul says this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So if you make it your determination to enter the kingdom of God, what are you going to go through? You're going to go through hardships. Not just Paul, but Jesus promises the same thing. If you set your heart to follow God, You are going to go through trials, tribulations, troubles. I need to emphasize this point, folks, because there's a lot of me-centered, self-centered theology. There's a lot of me-centered, self-centered. For the last 30 years, there's been a crisis, really, of preaching and books and TV causing you, convincing you that you're the center of the world. That everything is about you. And you should never be disturbed. You should never suffer. And all of this is nonsense. It's not biblical. It is not biblical. On the horizon of your life, you should see a cross. Not a pot of gold. And any vision you have of your future, it needs to be that. It needs to be firmly that. That you're following Christ and not some enticing scheme of the world. A lot of warnings in Scripture about that. So Paul tells me if I do dedicate my life to Christ properly, then I'm guaranteed to face many hardships. John chapter 21, one of my favorite pieces of Scripture, this. John chapter 21, take a look at that. Let me read from verse 18. John 20, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 18. Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. But when you, uh, and, and you went where you wanted. But now you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. And lead you where you do not want to go. Look at verse 19. Jesus said this to Peter. To indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Do we want to glorify God? We all want to glorify God. But here's Jesus saying to Peter in, in prophecy and predicting, Peter, you're the head of the apostles. And I'm just giving you a little bit of advance notice. I know you want to serve me. I know you want to glorify me. Well, the end result of that road, as I stand here, folks, and I look down this church, what do I see as I look to the back? A cross. Thank you, Martha. And the end of the road for Peter. And the end of the road for any servant of Christ who's truly walking with Christ. It's the same picture. And Peter was, Jesus was talking to Peter and saying, See, my end's your end. My goal's your goal. I want you to have the same vision for your future as I have for mine, which is selfless service of me. And to get him there, we know the story. This was 30 years would go by. Just over 30 years before Peter would actually be, indeed, crucified. So, there's, stick with Scripture. Don't listen to a trendy teaching, trendy preaching. Stick with Scripture. I believe that I'm called to the cross. Right? I believe I'm called to the cross to follow that path, to follow my Saviour in the same footsteps. Not, again, not popular today. But it is the reality. And millions of our brothers and sisters around the world wholeheartedly grasp that. And indeed, are martyred every day in other nations because of it. But our nation has made us complacent uh, and really backslidden, which is why, what is it, 2% of something of the UK is saved. Uh, well, well, you get somewhere like Singapore where it's something like 30% is saved. Vast difference. And the difference is in the understanding, the difference is in the mindset of the people in the nation. Some people get it, some people don't. Some nations get it, some nations don't. It's not because God favors Brazil or Korea or Singapore. It's got nothing to do with it. It's got to do with the mentality of the churches and the Christians in the nation. And our nation has been just brainwashed into a self-centered gospel. Instead of a cross-centered gospel. And a sacrificial gospel. Third reason. Why should we study Job? Because the persecution and war and whatever other trial or tribulation you want to put there. They're all, they're all the same thing. If someone if a Christian is being persecuted, it, it, it's the same could I have my thing there. It's pretty much <coughs> excuse me. It's if a Christian is being persecuted, it's pretty much the same as someone who is sick. If you get diagnosed with some terrible disease or whatever, that's not a lot different from someone who's sitting in a prison cell. I would remind you that Pastor Johann's, thank you. Pastor Johann's brother, for example, is in prison this morning. And has been for five years, six years. And he has a choice that he can get up and he can say to the guards, I reject Jesus Christ and he can walk out. His sister was in there for something like four years. His brother is still in there this morning. 24 hours a day. Baking heat, freezing cold. Baking heat, freezing cold. And they tie some of them up. They tie them in what's called a butterfly formation and leave them. And they can no longer walk then because their limbs become redundant Terrible cruelty going on as we sit here comfortably in this room with our brothers and sisters who have got such a firm grasp on life that they don't reject Christ under any circumstance. Praise God for them. Praise God for them. So, my third point. Persecution and sickness, they're the same thing, really. Because, Johann's brother has got a challenge to his faith. Do I abandon my faith and walk free? No, I will stick it out. I'll stick through the pain. Now, a person who is sick has the same problem. Do I abandon my faith or do I stay? No, I'll stay. You understand? They're the same thing. So, in our countries, we may have sicknesses and things like that. In other countries, they may have persecutions. But it all brings a challenge of faith. That's what it does. It brings me to a point where I need to make a decision about who my priority is, where my priorities lie. And the battle in suffering, the great battle in suffering, really, there's a strategy behind it. Dead devil has a strategy behind our, any pain that you have in your life. And God has a strategy. The devil's strategy, lower your faith. Destroy your faith as much as possible through suffering, through pain. And God's strategy? To grow your faith through the very same thing. Through the very same pain. Through the very same suffering. The devil's strategy? Oh yes. (laughs) To steal your joy. Above all things, he's the joy thief. That's who he is. You'll always know he's visited you because your joy is gone. Right? He's the joy thief. God's goal, God's strategy? He wants to give you endless joy, boundless joy, because the joy of the Lord is... Your strength. Got any strength? You can trace it all back to your reactions to the trials and tribulations of life. The devil's goal is to take pain, any form of pain, and to try and get you to think, ah, you see, God doesn't care about you. If God cared about you, you wouldn't have pain. You wouldn't suffer. You wouldn't go through this. You wouldn't go through that. The devil wants to speak you know, fiery darts, as Paul calls them, into your mind about the pains and the problems that affect your life and make you think that God doesn't love you. Listen carefully. If that doesn't work, he'll use pleasure. He'll tell you, you don't need God. You don't need God to be happy. You can go out into the world and you can get as much pleasure as you want. God is redundant, right? So he will use these things as much as possible to try and stifle your faith. Now, in the pain... We give God glory. That's his strategy. Yes, we're going to have pains. The Bible promises that if we follow God, we will have pains. But through those pains, we give God glory. We smile through the storm. And instead of pleasure, we reject the pleasures of this life, this world. And we take on the fact that we've got God. We've got God. Hallelujah. We've got God. And we'll hang on to God. This whole joy thing is so underestimated You know, I really believe it. It's underestimated. So, why did Jesus go to the cross? For the joy, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus saw something at the other end of that road to Golgotha, that road to the cross, he saw something so powerful, so overwhelming, that he endured all that. He said, for the joy set before Jesus Christ, which he understands and we don't, for the joy set before him, he endured all of it, knowing that there would be a day when he would be free in that. Hallelujah. Get your joy back. Where are you on this list? Has the devil stolen your joy? Is he manipulating your pains? Because we've all got pains and sufferings. It's just how we deal with them. Fourth reason why we should study the book of Job. Because natural disasters... I mean, have we had some disasters recently or what? Incredible, isn't it? I mean, that's God speaking. I wouldn't mind one or two, but there's been so many disaster after disaster of late. They are really increasing, eh? Number four, because natural disasters have put God on the news. You know, five, half a million people, 500,000 people died in the cyclone in Bangladesh in 1991. That's a lot of people. Half a million. It's a huge number of people. And then we have all the recent the tsunami. We have the plane crashes. We've got Ebola. You've got AIDS. All these things. And you know, on television, as soon as the natural disasters occur... The first thing the chat shows, the breakfast shows, the morning news, what do they get? They get an evangelist on there. They get the local pastor in and they stick him in the seat because it's their opportunity to have a pot shot at the church. Well, oh, pastor, could you tell me why God just wiped out 500,000 people? And, of course, most of those guys maybe struggle to give a, a decent biblical answer. And if they do give a proper answer, they won't be invited back on the show. Right? Tongue tied. Can't say actually what what is going down. So we need to know about the book of Job because it talks about the families being destroyed in a day. Which was a natural disaster at that time. We don't know. It just says fire out of the sky, etc. We don't know what that was. But it's a natural disaster taking place. And, And what these things do is, again, the whole pain thing. They cause people to think, you know what? God doesn't care. And it sows a little seed of doubt. And doubt, when you doubt God's goodness, you rebel. When you doubt God, that's where your disobedience comes from. That's where you start trying to figure it all out yourself. That's where you come up with your own plans. Right? And these are the things that, if we're not careful, these are the very things which can bring doubt into our lives. And we need to get rid of them somehow, some way. Number five. Many people reject God as soon as suffering hits. I got saved with a guy, a very good friend of mine, called Declan. Uh, we both got saved at the same time. We got baptised at the same time. He was a lovely guy. We lived together for a while. And we ministered together in evangelism a lot. But we both hit, hit trouble. We both hit tough times. And I look back on it, Declan left. That's my point, number five. Declan left God because of suffering. He walked away. I couldn't believe it because we got saved together. And he rang me about 10 years, many years later. He found me. He rang me. And I said, you know, where are you going? I don't go anywhere. And pain in his life, suffering in his life had caused him to reject God. Many of you have been to the homeless meeting on Thursday, right? When you talk to those guys, what do they say? Man after man after man that I speak to, they will, if you give them the chance, they will say, do you know what? Once I had it all. Yeah. Everyone, Same story over and over again. But something happened. My marriage broke up. Then I lost my kids. Then I lost my house. Then I didn't get my job. Then I ended up here. Next person, same story. Next person, same story. And we're surrounded by people whose suffering caused them to turn away from God. And you start talking to them and they've got no place for it. I thank God this week I got a conversation with a guy called Ralph on Thursday night there. ah, yeah, And he told me the same story. Same story. This is what's happened to me. This is what's happened to me. Uh, so I just let him talk. And at a certain point he kept on he was a very discerning guy. He kept on looking me in the eye then talking then looking me in the eye. And at a certain point He thought, hmm, you you care, don't you? I could see him thinking, you're not just here, you understand this. And he came a little bit closer and he said, "Um, actually, I've got cancer. And he didn't want to tell me that. Because he didn't want to cast his pearls before swine. But he wanted to tell someone. But he wanted it to be someone who he thought at least cared. And it was a painful moment. It was a nice moment, but a painful moment. Why should I study Job? Because individuals like that, I think he felt in me without saying. He's very discerning. I thought, you've suffered. I don't know what you suffered, but you've suffered. You didn't reject Christ, did you? No, I didn't. People pick it up. And that was enough just to bring him in the line. And Gordon and Susan and myself, we prayed for him and sent him back to his room. And we said to him, tonight before you sleep, pray pray don't blame god don't judge god for your life but pray see suffering comes in many forms many shapes and that's the loss that guy on thursday night was lost but hey it happens us as well folks and if you don't think that your faith can be shaken i believe your faith can be shaken listen to this testimony it's a great testimony Joseph Parker was the minister of the city temple in London from 1874 until his death in 1902. He said this, that up to the age of 68, he never had a religious doubt. Wow, pretty good, huh? 68 years old, walking with God all his life, 38 years in ministry, and I believe him, I can feel the power in his testimony, and I never had a doubt about God. Then my wife died, and my faith all but collapsed. And in that dark hour he wrote these words. I became almost an atheist, for God had set his foot upon my prayers and treated my petitions with contempt. If I had seen a dog in such agony as mine, I would have pitied and helped the dumb beast. Yet God spat upon me and cast me out as an offence onto the waste and the wilderness, a dark and starless night. He recovered. He recovered. But you can see a moment, even with those who have walked all their lives, when the blow comes, it can destabilize the best of people, like John the Baptist, etc., etc. When the pain strikes, when the pain comes, we need to be prepared for that pain, which is why we study Job. Right? Number six. And this is something that the world will reject. The people we witness to will reject. But the worst suffering in the world is hell, right? Because it's eternal. It's a suffering that will never end. It's a pain that will never cease. And it's the longest. I believe that there's a hell. Do you? I believe there's a hell. Hey, I better be careful I don't end up there. And so had you. Now, one of the the things that God uses in our lives to turn us from evil is what? (laughs) Suffering. And God brings suffering to a man, to a woman, to you, to me, in order to turn us from an evil way and to put us on a right path. It says that he who has suffered in his body... you read your Bible? (laughs) He who has suffered in his body has finished with sin. In other words, God has turned the person because the pain has got their attention and eventually the person can jump onto the rock of righteousness and it's changed them. Fortunately, I'm sorry, if there was another way... He would take another way, but there is no other way. So hell is the biggest form of suffering, for sure. And it never ends. And in order for us, that's you and me, that's you and me, in order for us to avoid that, God says at some points in some of our lives, He will employ employ suffering in order to keep us saved. God's speaking in this room right now. God is speaking in this room right now to some of you. Don't reject it. He's a good father, a very good father. Number seven, why does suffering come in the first place? I deliberately didn't answer this question last week because I wanted you to just to get the point that suffering can f- come from God's hand. I wanted to establish that before we move on to other things. I hate flip charts. I absolutely Hate flip- There will be no flip charts in heaven. You know that. Stay there. Why do people suffer? Why do sicknesses come? Why do calamities come? Number one reason. Sin. God didn't want it. God didn't want someone sick. God didn't want someone to die. God didn't want the calamity. The number one reason, but it's not the only reason. The number one reason... And the most common reason in the world why sickness, pain and grief come is because people sin and the devil gets a legal way into their lives and he brings trouble, he brings disaster. But God didn't want it, first and foremost. Second way that trouble and sickness and strife come into our lives is through curses. And God's been speaking to me on this one about some of you. I haven't spoken to you yet. There's some people here with curses, you know coming down your family tree. It makes a lot of sense to me. So curses can bring these things upon the second and third generation. Correct. Right? So uh, where does suffering come from? Sin in our lives, not God's will. He doesn't want us to suffer this way. Curses. And thirdly, God's hand. Now let me say, listen carefully. If a person sins and they get sick because of it, Forgive me for using this example, but it's a good example. Many of us remember Linda Murray. Remember Linda? She was one of my heroes in life. I had enormous respect for Linda. And I used to love to visit that family because I could really be me. (laughs) I could be really blunt because they're more blunt than me, right? Oh, that woman, that, that, that household. You could say anything in there. And the things that even I went, oh, don't say that, you know. And I'm bad. She got the news that she had cancer. And I went up to the house and there was Jamie and there was Linda and there was one, I can't remember whether it was Marie or one of the other kids were there and I sat down and Jamie turned to me and said, oh, Linda's just got cancer and he said, we're all really shocked. And I remember thinking, I'm not shocked actually. And I said it, I said, Jamie, I'm not shocked. Linda smoked for 30 years. Linda smoked for 30 years. So what's with the shock? If you smoke, you increase your chances. And they looked at me and thought, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. And they can't accept it. And you know, it broke the atmosphere. It broke the pain, to degree Because they thought, yeah, I brought Why am I questioning God? I did this to me. It wasn't God. Correct. Sin causes sickness. Sin causes pain. Sin brings disaster. But God is a good God. If you sin, believe me, God will cover it up. God will cover it up and then he will take it away by his blood. So don't be afraid. What a per- if a person has sinned and they are suffering because of it, repent and pray. And if you have sinned and sin has brought sickness or trouble into your life, repent and we will pray for you and you can be healed and you can be restored. Are you with me? Amen. Amen. This is the story of Scripture. It's the Bible. So people will say to me, look at me and listen to me now. People will say to me, if you say that God is the one who brings sickness, then you're not going to pray for healing. No! That's not what I'm saying. Sin brings sickness. It's not the only reason. It's not the only biblical way that suffering comes into a life. It's only one. So when I see someone and I think that sin... This week, I had just one of you with this very problem. Coming to me saying, maybe you, maybe this is the hand. I said, that's not the hand of God. That's not the hand of God. That's evil. Break that in Jesus' name. People will say to me, if you say that it's God's hand, then you're not going to pray for healing. No, that's wrong. I will discern on every case, like Jesus did, if a person comes to me, is the root of your problem sin? Is it not your fault because it's an ancestral curse? In which case we need to break off the ancestral line. It's not you. This is you personally. This is your family tree. And this is the hand of God. Three different paths through which pain and suffering and sickness come into people's lives. But there's no discernment. There's no discernment with Christians. They just, God never does anything like that to me or blah, blah, blah. Are you with me? you with me? So, like with Linda, I was able to say, look, this is not the hand of God. I believe you brought this on yourself. And you did. Last week we saw a little bit about how how God does that in Job. (coughs) Excuse me. Turn with me to (coughs) Genesis chapter 50. In fact, sorry, let, let me just start somewhere else. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. This is Jesus speaking. And God the Father is just about to put the cross upon him. Jesus. Luke chapter 22 verse 42. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. So who put the cross on Jesus? God. God the Father put the cross upon the Son. In his case, it's because of our sin, not his sin, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me give you a human example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul talking, to keep me from becoming conceited, maybe losing your salvation, Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So here you have eyes forward. So you meet the Apostle Paul. And he's got some sickness. He's got some problem in his body. And you, a raving Pentecostal, you say, that's not from God. Let me pray for you and remove it. How does Paul answer you? With his sickness. He says, you can't remove it because God gave me this sickness. God gave me this thorn. I asked him three times to remove this thing, to remove this affliction. And God said to me, no, that's from me. It's not because of sin, Paul. I put that in you because 16 books in your New Testament are going to come through you and I need to reveal things to you. And because of that, I need to keep you lowly. So you're going to suffer, Paul. Sorry about that. And no doubt Paul would say, is there any other way? Could you maybe change this cup? Not in this case, Paul. you got to bear it. You've got to walk with it. So you need, at all points in your life, like Job, he argues his case well. He says he knows he's a sinner, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the cause for what's happening, Job. He didn't think it was a curse and it took some time before he realized this is nothing other than the hand of God in my life. And then you embrace whatever that thing may be. Genesis chapter 50. Last example. It's a great example. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Ah, There's a good book written about this very line here. This is Joseph talking when he's been in the pit and he's been in the prison For 14 years in prison, imagine that, and you haven't done anything wrong. It's not because Joseph sinned, right? No, God put him in prison. God put a good man, totally blameless, locked him up for 14 years. And then he's out and he's now become president. The most powerful superpower in the world at that time. He's like, whatever he's called in America, Joe Biden. He's the second in command of the superpower on earth from a prison to a throne. And he understands that's why he was able to be promoted. Because he understood what had happened to him and didn't judge God because of it. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Talking to the brothers who tried to kill him. They think this was them that did it. And Joseph corrects him and he says, no, 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 no. You did this to harm me. But God. Who? God intended it for good. This wasn't you that did this. This was the hand of God that did this. God was behind this all the time. Not you. So I want you, I bet the brothers felt better then, didn't they? (laughs) I I want you to reject the sugar daddy mentality of our day. And I want you to be able like Job to one day say, shall I accept goodness from the hand of God and not adversity? We shall accept both. Amen. Amen. We shall accept both. Leanne put it very fittingly on Friday night. She's got it. She was saying, I can take anything from God's hand. Amen. I can take anything. Anything. I don't care what it is. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how sick I get. If I know that you're behind it, this will drive me insane. With pain. Couldn't cope. This, again, will drive me crazy because I haven't done anything. But this, no, It's the easiest of the three. Right? It's the easiest of the three because I know ultimately God is behind what's happening. It's a a very serious point, I know, but a very good point, folks, and you will need it one day. Everybody in this room, unfortunately, will need it one day. Job chapter 33 and verse 14. You see... Job was saying, God's not talking to me. I can't hear his voice. All these things have happened and he won't give me an answer. He won't tell me anything. And one of Job's friends, it's the only friend who's a good friend. He's got three friends who are not great. And he's got one called Elihu who's a good guy. And Job thinks God's not talking. And Elihu answers Job and says, first, Job chapter 33 verse 14. Elihu says, no, 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 for God does speak now in one way, now in another, though men may not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep fall upon them as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings, to turn them, here we go, to turn a man from wrongdoing and to keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword, or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain, there it is, with consistent distress upon his bones, so that his very being finds food repulsive, and his soul loathes the choices of meal. He wastes away to nothing. And on and on it goes. Folks, eyes forward, look. How does God speak? You remember the pot we stirred last week? With the residual pride that Job had. And God stirred it up through suffering. Here, Elihu draws out three things that Christians can have that shows you something is in you that God needs to percolate out of you. The first one was nightmares. He says that um, a Christian who has residual sin buried within them, there's a clear glass, they feel self-righteous. Remember? He felt so clear. But God can see what is within you. And that thing within you, be careful of it, because sins can drag people down to the pit. So God stirs that up. How? The first thing He says. You'll be fast asleep on your bed. And you'll be wakened and terrified with a scream in the night. That God Himself will release demonic forces to disturb you, to terrify you. Do you know why? To scare the hell out of you. To scare you out of hell. That's why. Nightmares in the night. Sent by God. To disturb us. To shake our self righteous confidence. Amen? Amen? To shake up your self righteous conscience. You know, because that's what we're like. As human beings. That's what Job was like. When they said why this, he was so self confident, right? And it took all those months it took for him to come to this. And this is the finish of the book, chapter 33. It's the final conclusion with Elihu, which is the correct perspective on what was happening. Then Elihu says, do you know that Job, God will put a man on a bed of pain. And he will do that in order to perfect him, to keep him safe. And he says, don't you know that God will use affliction? My point is, folks, Job was arguing his point. He said, God's not speaking to me. And Elihu said, he is. You're having nightmares. You're suffering. you're the, He is this way. But you do not perceive it. God does speak now in this way, now in that. But you don't connect it to the sin within you. And so the cycle can go on for decades, which is, let me tell you, <laughs> something that's not, not going to be happening to me. Right? I will understand the cycle I'm in and I will be coming out of that cycle at a pretty rapid rate. All things, no matter what these things are, all these things work together for good. I must believe that, right? Scripture says that. No matter what happens to me, God has the ability to turn it around and make it work for good, right? It doesn't matter, whether, you know, even on the previous list. Whatever ancestral things or whatever calamities or sins, it, it doesn't matter. He is able to turn all these things around and make them work for good. Number eight was the point I just mentioned. <coughs> The devil meant it for harm, but God intends to turn it for good. Number nine, our losses are our sufferings as the world watch us. Our losses and our sufferings are intended to show the world that we value Christ above all things. That we don't chase after what the pagans chase after. We're not after things primarily. You will, do, you will be very wise to study the life of Job and to understand the progressive nature of the hand of God when it arrived. The first thing the hand of God did was obliterate all his stuff. I was sent Isabel on Tuesday. I gave away everything I have, you know. In fact, 20 families here. The last thing to go was my washing machine to your place, right? I got rid of every single thing I've got. And some people said, Pastor Mike's gone a little bit. He's losing his marbles. Uh, No, Pastor Mike's not losing his marbles. Pastor Mike knows that he's being pruned. And you can either work with the pruning process and speed it up. Or you can resist the pruning process and slow it down. And then you're going to be stuck right there for years to come. So as soon as I understood that, oh, I see, this is your hand. Well, God, bring it on. You won't have to, I won't have to wait for you because there's not going to be anything here. Got it? So you can either work with God and speed your recovery or you can slow it down. The first thing that happened, Job, was the removal of things. I cannot express how... Oh, I cannot put it in words. One of you, I won't say who, came up to me when I mentioned this a few weeks back and with a broken heart, they looked at me and they said... I envy you. I wish I had what you had. But I've got many things. Like the rich young ruler. I've got many things. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I could. I know. I get it. It's just, I guess I'm, I I don't like playing safe. I hate safe. Safe is boring. Life is boring being safe. I like risks. So I decided to take the risk. And let's see what's on the other side. So I emptied everything I've got. Kept my clothes. Kept one desk so I can write these messages. That's it. Nothing else in my house. So I rented a furnished house. (laughs) Just so that I'm complete. So that I know I'm going to move on. Not stand still. Don't stand still. I cannot express to you in words the freedom that gave me. I cannot put it in words. I was saying to the person who came to me, I said, you know what? I was in a shopping centre. This is about three months ago. I walked through a shopping centre. And for the first time in my whole life, I didn't want anything. Hallelujah. I There was nothing. Nothing I wanted. Nothing. I've never experienced that. I didn't know that that existed. Hallelujah. Hey? <laughs> is there anybody here? Amen. Okay. This is easy. If you can't cope with the easy bit, we're not going very far, are we? If you can't run with the footmen, how are you going to run with horses? I intend to run with the horses, so let's get rid of that and let's get moving. So I had to sign three times. First time, had to sign for my things to be taken to an auctioneer and sold. The next signature I have to do is for my wife to go. It's a signature. That's hard. This is easy, but if you don't do it, you're never going to arrive here. So two signatures here. One for my possessions, then the second one for my property, and God was in the taxi, Remember? God was with me in the taxi driver. A little nudge. I'm here. That gave me great confidence for the next signature. That's why that guy was there. Great confidence for the final signature when you're actually... The last thing is gone. Your wife is gone. And there you are. This is the path of Job. Oh, forgot something. (laughs) Health. There was one last thing. So Job went through this, went through that. And God reserved and protected his health And Satan was not allowed to touch him. You remember the story. And Satan came back after this was gone and that was gone. Satan comes back before God and says, Ah! But if you touched his body, he will surely reject you. And you know the story. God said, Oh, really? Do you think so? It's a wonderful thing, you know. And Job's body began to break out. It says, his body began to break out in sores. Sores he couldn't make much sense. A bit like that. His body began to break out in sores. Sores that he did not know the origin of. He couldn't figure out. But it was a good sign, as well as a painful sign. It was a good sign that he was arriving in the final stage. Are you with me? So, this path, my friend, is alive and kicking. I just don't know if you want to step onto it. (laughs) This path is alive and kicking... And I, like you, I have similarities to Job, but I have things that are not similar. I am not blameless. Far from it. I will never claim that. I'm a sinner. That's what I am. But God is in me. Right? I may be a bad boy, but I'm God's bad boy. You get it? So, there are things in me which are similar to Job. Very similar. And I see myself in that. And I see bits of him in me. But whatever was necessary in Job's life, I consider myself highly favoured. This may not make sense to you, and people judge me. I can say, I read your minds, folks. <laughs> I know exactly what you're thinking. It just takes time to get through it all. Okay? The Bible says Jesus knew their thoughts. You do. You know people's thoughts, and you have to try and help them along, even with their thoughts, even with that. Even with the judgments and stuff that go with it. But this is Job's path, and it's a hard path, but I would rather take this path. Than any other path in my life, I tell you. I, w- I would not swap my place for any one of you. Not in a million years. I wouldn't switch my place right now with you, <laughs> you know, or anybody else I know. I'm happy with my lot. Why? Because God is in it. Because God is in it. My last point, I don't know why it's not on your notes, it's on my notes. Don't rush to judgment. That was the story that was consistent throughout the entire book, from beginning to end. That's what they said. God, nowhere in Scripture are you addressed as an adult. You are always, always a child. If if any reference is made to adults, it's made because of chronology. Not because of any form of maturity as such. He always addresses you as a child, because you are a child. In God's eyes, you're a child. And will remain so. Don't be afraid of that. Embrace it. And God is a good father. And any good father wants his child to be able to focus uh, and grip. So they give him a rattle. Right. You give the rattle. And the baby loves it. Focus on it. You know the story. And eventually, the day comes when well, you don't need that rattle anymore, kid. And you got to... Take it away. He gives the good father and he takes away. You give, a good father will give his child a comfort blanket because he needs it. They need that. They need to sleep. They need to be at peace. But the day will come when you've got to take it away. You've got to intervene in the child's life and they don't want that and that child looks at mummy, looks at daddy and says, I thought you loved me. You gave me the rattle and you take it away. You gave me the blanket and then you take it away. The child can't see from its narrow little world and its narrow little perspective that it's actually a good hand that is behind it all. And it's a hand that's going to help you to grow. Now for me, forgive me for saying this, I don't mean to offend you, but if love was a cake, if love was a pizza, I got a very big slice of the pizza. I got a very. That's why I've written two books on love. Because I got a massive chunk of that. A very intense, not normal. In fact, I'll just tell you the truth as I see it. I, don't, I have never met one person who knows love or has experienced it like I have. If I did, I would say so. I, in my opinion, I have not met such a person. And I, w- I have been critical for many years. God, why did, why did you bless me with enormity, intensity, beyond measure, in love? You blessed me with this thing. Why? Now I know why. (laughs) You gave it to take it away. You gave it to me so that you could take it away. And through this I would glorify you. I understand. I get it. I accept it. And that's really my story at this moment. God gave me great intensity but he gave it to teach me. And then to test me and to see if I would glorify God in this moment and in this trial. Absolutely, I will. I accept it. I receive it. The only one last question I have to God is, is there any other, is there any way we could change the cup? Is there, any, is there another way instead of this? Is there, because if there is, I'll take it. What's the answer? There is no other way. You're going to have to come down this road. And it's a great day, you know, when you accept that for your life, and I accept that for my life. I believe ultimately that he is a good, good, good God with my welfare and the welfare of the nations on his mind. And he sees my eternity, I see my tomorrow. He's worried about eternity, I'm worried about next week. Forever and ever, ever, we're going to be there, right? Right? And he sees that and he prioritizes that. So this morning, if it's okay with you, will you become a child? Because you are one. Whether you realize it or not, in God's eyes, you are a child. And he needs to be able to speak to you and work with you without you judging him, preempting him. And let his good hand do the pruning. Last week, as I chopped down the orchid, (laughs) as I chopped down the orchid, and I looked at these first three, four rows, it's all I can see from here. Nearly every person was crying here. And that really touched me. One person was crying a lot. So I went up to them at the end, and I said, hey, I'm fine, Jeanette's fine, we've never been better. And the person said, I wasn't crying because of that. I was crying because you chopped up your orchid. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay, okay. Thank you very much. God bless you. <laughs> Let me ask you to become as a little child just for a moment, because you're all looking a bit tired there. It's like time for your afternoon nap, actually. You just sit back and relax. Don't go to sleep yet. <laughs> I'm going to read you a story. Once upon a time, there was an old man who lived in a village. And he he had the most beautiful white horse. And all the people wanted it. Everyone offered him lots of money for it. But he said he wouldn't sell it because he loved the horse. The villagers came to him and they said, If you don't sell it, someone will steal it. Then you'll end up with no money and no horse. But the man said, no, I won't sell my horse. I love my horse. Sure enough, one day, the old man got up and the stable was empty. And all the villagers came and said, ah, look, you refused to sell your horse and now it's been stolen. What God gave you as a blessing has now become a curse. Why do you speak so foolishly, the old man said? You do not know if it is a blessing or a curse. No one knows. All I know is this. Once I had a white horse and it's no longer in the stable. Three weeks went by and the white horse returned. But it had 12 white horses with it. And now the man was very wealthy and all the neighbours came and said, Ah! It wasn't a blessing. It wasn't a curse. It was a blessing that God put upon you. And the old man said... Why do you speak so quickly? Why are you so foolish? Don't you know that no one knows whether it's a blessing or a curse? One, the, the elderly man had a young son. And the young son climbed up on one of the wild horses to tame it, to break it. And the horse threw him off. And the son broke both his legs. And all the villagers came and they said, Ah! The wild horses... They weren't a blessing. They were a curse because your son has broken legs. And the old man said, Why do you speak so foolishly? Why do you judge so quickly? You do not know whether it's a blessing or a curse. All I know is once I had one horse, now I have 12. Once I had an able bodied son, now my son is disabled. That is all I know. Whether it is a blessing or a curse. Only God knows. The next week, war broke out. And all the people in the village had to give their children, their sons, to go to war. And maybe never return. But the old man's son couldn't go. Because he had two broken legs. And all the people in the village came and said, It was a blessing that the horse threw your son. It was a blessing that his legs were broken. And the old man said, "How long will you go on like this? Whether it is a blessing or a curse, I, I do not know. I know this: I had one horse, now I have 12. I had an able-bodied son, now I have a disabled son. But whether it is a blessing or a curse, I do not know. Only Only God knows. And Job was like that. And the friends were like the villagers. And for you to have peace in your life, you need to be able to be like that old man and say, you know what? Like the cards. I take my hand and I'll work with my hand. And when my life is over, then I'll understand. But right now it just can, can be very confusing to us." Accept your lot. Accept your life. And glorify God in it. Good days and bad. Ups and downs. Accept God in it. Honor Him in it. Glorify Him in every circumstance. In every situation. This is our job. This is our work. Good night, children. (laughs) Sleep tight. (laughs)